For more information about our teaching and preaching ministry, you can find us online at cornerstoneorlando.org. The following sermon has been brought to you by Cornerstone Orlando, making disciples for the glory of God. Blast of the Trumpets, part two, Revelation chapter eight, verses six through 13. So we are blessed uh, to be back in our study of Revelation this evening. I'm uh, just blessed personally by being able to spend time in this, in this book. I pray that it's been a blessing to you as well. And we're looking at the cycle of trumpets now, this third of seven literary cycles in the book. And to get us back to where we were last week, a brief uh, review. Uh, In the penetrating silence of heaven, it marks the loosing of the seventh seal. In the midst of that silence, while judgment is being poured out upon the earth, uh, John sees seven angels standing before God, standing before the throne. And those angels are given seven trumpets. And these angels then, in the midst of that silence, begin to prepare themselves to blow. There's a connectedness there between the seals and the trumpets in that way. Judgment upon the earth is going to continue. And now from a different perspective, we're going to see those judgments upon the earth in a different perspective. It's the perspective of the trumpets. The angels prepare to blast the trumpets, and each blast of the trumpet is a precursor to judgment. Each blast of the trumpet announces, if you will, precedes judgment that is poured out upon the earth. It's poured out upon the earth and meant to judge those who dwell on the earth. And what we see now in this cycle of trumpets is, again, it's another perspective of judgment during this time, during this period between the first coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and his second coming, but there is an intensification of that judgment. There's an intensifying of that judgment. Although we look from a different perspective, now the judgment becomes more intense. It's parallel. It's recapitulating essentially similar material from the the seven seals, but the blast of the seven trumpets, both preceding judgment Uh, also uh, serve to warn of that impending great day of judgment at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is this intensification now in the judgments that points to the great day of judgment, the final day of judgment at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. The last three, as that intensifying takes place, as things build up, uh, the last three trumpets representing severe woes that are poured out on unbelievers themselves. Again, these are not mere natural disasters. These blasts of the trumpet represent, they signify the wrath of God being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the ungodliness and unrighteousness of those who dwell upon the earth. And each, if you remember uh, from the beginning of chapter 8, the prayers of the saints have ascended on the altar of incense. They've been offered up to God. God is, it's uh, inferred there that God hears that prayer and answers that prayer. And so the angel then takes the censer, he mingles it with fire, and he throws it down upon the earth in judgment. So each of these trumpets then, the trumpets that now immediately come uh, after that answered prayer of God, each of these trumpets, an answer to the prayer of the saints rising on the altar of incense. So God, and what that portrays is God acting with intentionality, God acting with purpose. This is in fulfillment of the decrees of God that pertain to this age. If you remember from Ezekiel, Ezekiel was handed the scroll 
And on this scroll, it was written on the inside and on the out, filled. Nothing could be added. Nothing could be taken away. And that scroll filled with lamentation and mourning and woe. When Jesus Christ comes to the throne in Revelation chapter 5, the one who's seated on the throne has in his right hand a scroll. That scroll written inside and out with the decrees of God concerning this time period, this um, advent, if you will, from the first advent of Jesus Christ to his second, this period of the church age. And Jesus Christ then begins uh, with the seals and now with the trumpets to execute the decrees that are listed uh, or written in that scroll inside and out. Again, a scroll filled with lamentation, mourning, and woe. So God is acting with intentionality. He's acting with purpose. He's carrying out his decrees that pertain to this age. The Lord Jesus Christ is executing them. They are, from one perspective, decrees that are determined to refine God's people, to purify God's people, to preserve his church, to bolster their faith, to cause them to cling to him in faith. And at the same time, they are decrees which serve to harden and to punish those who dwell on the earth, meant specifically to pour out judgment upon the wicked. As we saw uh, last Lord's Day together, the blast of the trumpet is an indication of God's presence in power. God is showing up in power, as it were, at the blast of these trumpets, pouring out his judgment. Here in Revelation 8, another depiction of the church age, these trumpets signify God's presence in power in judgment. Now, the first four trumpets of the judgment of God poured out upon the earth, it's poured out upon the earth as the habitation of those who dwell there. These are judgments meant to judge unbelievers. And so these judgments will result in death, result in famine, result in drought, uh, result in a terrible, uh, these horrific uh, calamities, catastrophes that take place on the earth. They're poured out upon the earth, but that with the intent of judging those who dwell upon the earth. The last of the trumpets, the last three woes, if you will, are indicative of that judgment which is poured out specifically upon earth dwellers themselves. Again, the unbelieving world referred to as those who dwell upon the earth. So these judgments poured out upon those who dwell upon the earth, those who are unbelieving, those who have rejected his son, our Lord Jesus Christ. So that brings us then to the pouring out of these judgments and the blasts of the trumpets that begin with verse 6. Look at verse 6 with me. So the seven angels then, who had the seven trumpets, they prepare themselves to sound. They make themselves ready. They etoimadzo, they prepare for the task that was at hand. And with the again, to make that connection in our minds, with the prayers of the saints that ascend on the altar of incense, having been heard by God, that's verse 5, the angel, having the golden censer, offering them with the incense of the altar, God now has determined, in answer to the prayers of his people, he's determined to judge those who dwell upon the earth. And each blast of the trumpet will announce an aspect of his judgment. And notice, we continue to see John's use of the number seven here as well. Again, the use of that number communicating more to us than mere quantity. Um, there's something signified by that number. That number is representative of completion. It's representative of perfection. And here you have the sounding of seven trumpets by seven angels. And what should that communicate to us? In other words, what this is communicating or what this is representing, signifying to us is the completion, the perfection of God's justice, the completion of God's judgment upon those who dwell upon the earth. In other words, at the end of this cycle, there's nothing left. 
God has completely, fully, entirely poured out a complete justice upon the wicked. Um, it's going to be finished. Uh, I believe it was in, in Revelation uh, 21 when we were looking at last week that, um, if I'm not mistaken, um, that he, with basically a stroke of his pen, it's done, right? It's done. At the end of the age, when the judgments have been poured out, it's done. It's finished. Seal it up. It's complete. In other words, uh, judgment is now done and we enter glory. So this is com- communicating to us a, a completion, a perfection of God's decrees of judgment for this age. Each of the trumpets, all of these judgments, will climax eventually, ultimately, in the last great day of judgment that will finish all judgments, as it were. That last great day of judgment, when God's temporal judgments poured out upon the earth and are poured out upon those who dwell there, will be fully and finally concluded. With that, the angels have taken their trumpets. They've prepared themselves. They've made themselves ready. The trumpets then begin to sound. Verse 7. The first angel sounded, and hail and fire followed, mingled with blood. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. So this is a judgment of God. And this judgment of God affects the land, the trees, and the grass. And when you listen to verse 7, I'd ask you to think, does that language sound familiar to you? That judgment sound familiar to you? If it sounds familiar, that's because it it is. (laughs) And it sounds like those judgments that were poured out on Egypt at the time of the Exodus. Turn with me back to Exodus chapter 9. Exodus chapter 9. And I want us to look at this similarity here. And again, Revelation being the capstone of the canon, what we're seeing is these visions given to John calling forth out of the Old Testament, as it were, um, prefigurings or foreshadowings, calling out of the Old Testament these typological pictures, if you will, of full and final judgment at the end of the age. Uh, And we see that done here in Exodus chapter 9 in the plagues that were poured out on the Egyptians at the time of the Exodus. Uh, First, in, in Exodus chapter 9, verse 13, you have the plague of hail on the Egyptians. And we see in verse 13, God's purpose for the plague. And let's make this connection. Verse 13. Then the Lord said to Moses, rise early in the morning, stand before Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time, I will send all my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. You see the purpose for that plague? In other words, if we stop and think about it for a moment, the the ultimate purpose of the plague was not to get Pharaoh to change his mind. God knew that Pharaoh wasn't going to change his mind. God himself had hardened the heart of Pharaoh. But God's people would come out. They would come out, but they would come out in God's timing when God was ready. And what was God's purpose? What was his purpose in hardening Pharaoh's heart in pouring out this judgment? It's so that, at the end of verse 14, you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. There's additional purpose stated here, beginning in verse 15. Now, If I had stretched out my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, then you would have been cut off from the earth. In other words, God's saying, uh, if I wanted to wipe you off the face of the earth, 
immediately, I could do it. I could do it. But, verse 16, rather, or indeed, for this purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name may be declared in all the earth. We're going to see this text again in Romans 9 very soon. Now, in other words, again, that God could have destroyed them in an instant, but God didn't do that. God hardens Pharaoh's heart and continues with all 10 plagues that God had decreed. And he does this for a purpose, verse 16, right? I've raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name, my glory, my attributes, my justice may be declared in all the earth and his mercy and his grace in bringing his own people out of Egypt. So God has a purpose. The purpose wasn't ultimately their repentance. And it's because these plagues aren't ultimately warnings. These plagues are judgments. And in the plagues, uh, we don't have time to get into the details of this tonight, but in each of these plagues, God is judging their idols. God is judging the false gods of the Egyptians. And he's saying, there is no one in heaven but me. No one among the false gods of this world like me. Um, And he's showing his power against the Egyptians and their so-called gods. Gods who can't speak or walk. They're made of blocks of wood, gold and silver and other foolish things. So Paul draws this conclusion then from this. They're not ultimately warnings. They're not intended for the purpose ultimately of, of bringing the Egyptians to repentance. His purpose ultimately is to pour out his judgment upon wicked false religion, idols, and wicked unbelievers. So Paul draws a conclusion this, then from this in Romans 9. Therefore, Paul says, God has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills he hardens. Now, that's not unlike it, it is in our day, and God's pouring out of judgment, and uh, in this cycle of trumpets, pouring out his judgments during the church age. Like those in our day, those who dwell on the earth, they persecute the people of God. So, those plagues of judgment poured out by God in the trumpet of, in the cycles of trumpets, for example, have the purpose of hardening their hearts for the purpose that God's power might be demonstrated against them to his glory. And so that his name, what's meant by God's name here, is his attributes, his mercy, his justice, his grace, his retributive wrath, so that his name might be declared in all the earth by those who trust him. Look at verse 17. As yet, again, continuing to speak of these plagues being poured out on Egypt, as yet you exalt yourself against my people in that you will not let them go. So make the connection with me. In Revelation chapter 8, the prayers of God's people have ascended to God on the the altar of incense. The prayer going up is, God, how long, holy and true, how long before you vindicate our name upon those who dwell on the earth, right? Those who have persecuted your people, those who have uh, put your people to a hard bondage, those who have um, caused the suffering of your people. And the same thing is going on here in Egypt. As Pharaoh, as the Egyptians exalt themselves against the people of God, in that particularly here, they will not let them go. Verse 18, behold, tomorrow about this time, I will cause very heavy hail to rain down, such as not been in Egypt since its founding until now. 
Therefore, send now and gather your livestock and all that you have in the field, for the hail shall come down on every man and every animal which is found in the field and is not brought home, and they shall die. Verse 22, then the Lord said to Moses, Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. There may be hail in all the land of Egypt, on man, on beast, and on every herb of the field throughout the land of Egypt. So Moses stretched out his rod toward heaven, and the Lord sent thunder and hail and fire darted to the ground. You see the, the similarity there? We have hail mixed with fire, mingled with fire. And the Lord rained hail on the land of Egypt. And so there was, verse 24, hail and fire mingled with the hail. So very heavy that there was none like it in all the land of Egypt since it became a nation. And the hail struck throughout the whole land of Egypt, all that was in the field, both man and beast. And the hail struck every herb of the field, broke every tree of the field, only in the land of Goshen, where the children of Israel were, there was no hail. Those whom God has, had marked. There will be um, a visible marking uh, that is provided for the children of Israel, God's covenant people. In the 10th plague, when they mark the doorpost and the lintel of their house with blood, the blood of the Passover lamb, and as the angel of death passes through Egypt, he passes over those with the blood. Um, the Lord, as we've already seen, Revelation chapter 7, marks his people. He seals his people as his own. So there's not in the, the judgments that are being poured out in this time, there's not a, a place that you can retreat to uh, named Goshen or some other, you know, Orlando, Chuliota out here in the sticks. There's not some place that we can retreat to, but we know, we know that God has sealed his people and God preserves his people through trial to his glory until the end. Here, the plague affects all of the land of Egypt, all those without God's seal upon them. In Revelation chapter 8, it's a third of the trees that are burned in all the grass. And it's in Revelation 8, it's also by hail and fire. And in Revelation 8, mingled with blood. And I think that, that reference, mingled with blood, refers to God's judgment. This is a judgment. It will be mingled with blood. Now, as we work through the trumpets, we're going to continue to see these similarities between the cycle of trumpets in Revelation 8 and the plagues upon Egypt in Exodus. From the big picture, John sees the plagues of Egypt as typological of these judgments of God. And this is important so that we understand what's going on in the cycle of trumpets. These plagues in Egypt are typological. They foreshadow or point to the judgments of God poured out on the earth during the church age. And I don't think from the cycle of trumpets that we're meant to consider these as sort of sequential trumpet or judgments that are being poured out, but these are all the judgments that we're going to see during this age. Uh, some of those judgments will be uh, more severe than others. I remember um, uh, sitting in my sister's house, my brother-in-law's house years ago, um, when the tsunami swept through Indonesia and it hit the news. Uh, and estimates were at that time that a quarter of a million people were killed by a flood, right? That's the judgment of God. That's the, the judgment of God being poured out during this age. Um, COVID kills a million people, right? That's the judgment of God being poured out during that. That's pestilence, right? So it's, it's that these judgments, these are judgments that we're to recognize them for what they are. These are the judgments of God. They are meant to be poured out as judgments upon those who dwell upon the earth. And as they're poured out, what do they do for God's people? They cause us to cling to him in faith. Uh, they purify our faith. They refine our faith. They cause us to persevere. 
right? They bolster our faith. They refine God's people at the same time they harden those who dwell upon the earth. We're going to see that as we work through the trumpets uh, and the other judgments as well. These judgments, again, they climax in Egypt. They climax in the exodus of God's people from their bondage in the land of Egypt. Uh, Presumably, presumably to their entrance into the promised land. We know how that goes. Right, They don't enter into the promised land. They end up wandering in Egypt uh, in the wilderness for 40 years. But just like the judgments of the church age, just like the judgments of the church age climax in the exodus of God's people from their bondage to sin, it, they climax in the exodus of God's people out of Babylon, and they're led by Jesus Christ to their promised land, a new heavens and a new earth. We're to see the connections. We're to see the similarities. Uh, what we're dealing with in the, in the cycle of trumpets that culminates at the end of the age is an exodus of God's people out of Egypt. What we'll see in a moment, an exodus of God's people out of exile in Babylon, an exodus of God's people from severe bondage in their sin, led by the Lord Jesus Christ into the promised land, into their promised rest, into their promised inheritance. And we're to see that typologically in Egypt, typologically in Israel's bondage in Babylon, fulfilled in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of the age at his return, okay? We're to see these connections in Scripture in the trumpets. Both the Egyptians and those who dwell on the earth persecute the people of God. They're both hardened at the judgment of God. Rather than turning to God in repentance, they turn to God in blasphemy. And that hardening serves to glorify God in his judgment. God will triumph over them, and that glorifies God in his justice. God, having raised them up for that purpose, that God might show his power in them. That should terrify any rationally thinking person, right? That God raised them up for the purpose of showing his omnipotent power in the pouring out of his wrath upon them, his omnipotent power in justice. Although judgment to the glory of God is the ultimate purpose, it doesn't mean that some may uh, turn in faith to him. Uh, that a remnant, according to grace, might turn to faith. Look at verse 20. This is an indication of that. He who feared the word of the Lord among the servants of Pharaoh made his servants and his livestock flee to the houses. There were some who took God at his word, who feared the Lord. Maybe, maybe there was a remnant among them who may have actually believed we know that to be true at the end of the age, in the cycle of trumpets, at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. All of those trumpets, the judgments being poured out, at the pouring out of God's judgment, although that judgment is meant to harden the hearts and to judge those who dwell upon the earth, we know that there will be a remnant of them who will be saved at the pouring out of those judgments. Verse 21, but he who did not regard the word of the Lord left his servants and his livestock in the field, and they perished. With that, with that, There's another way in which these Old Testament texts are connected to Revelation chapter 8. And we don't have time to go into that detail tonight, but I want to commend this to your study, to your thought. This is something to think through. And you're going to have to labor with me for a moment to make the connection here. I think this is something worthy of, of thought and meditation. The prophet Ezekiel is later sent to the rebellious house of Israel in their exile in the land of Babylon. Ezekiel is sent to Babylon. The children of Israel are in exile, not unlike the children of Israel in severe bondage in Egypt. Now the children of Israel are in severe bondage in Babylon, exiled to Babylon. 
They're going to harden their hearts against Ezekiel. That's what's going to happen. And God has decreed judgment against them. A lot of similarities, okay? This is where God then gives Ezekiel. If you remember Ezekiel chapter 2, God gives Ezekiel a scroll. It's going to be a word that Ezekiel proclaims to the people as God's prosecuting attorney against the nation. That scroll written on both sides, inside and out, filled with lamentation, mourning, and woe. In chapter 4 of Ezekiel, and again, we don't have time to turn there, but in chapter 4, Ezekiel is made to portray a sign to the house of Israel. If you remember the account there, Ezekiel is to take a clay tablet and he's to draw the city of Jerusalem upon the the tablet and display siege mounds around it. In other words, Jerusalem is going to be besieged. Ezekiel is to take an iron plate and place an iron plate between himself and the city, going to separate him from the city. And Ezekiel is to lay on his left side and God is going to lay the iniquity of Israel upon him as he lays on his left side. And Ezekiel is to bear the iniquity of the people of God on his left side one day for every year that the Lord judges them. In other words, for every year they spend in exile. 390 days on Ezekiel's left side. Remember that number. Then Ezekiel's to turn over and he's to lay on his right side and he's to bear the iniquity of Judah. 300 days on his left side, bearing the iniquity of the house of Israel. 40 days on his right side, bearing the iniquity of Judah. And again, 40 days, one day for each year, 40 years. Now, if you think about those numbers for a moment, Assyria did not spend 390 years in judgment, in in exile. uh, And uh, Judah did not spend 40 years in judgment, in exile. The numbers are symbolic. What are they when you add them together? We have a math major, someone with a calculator, an abacus. No, 430 years. Okay, we can do that basic math. 430 years. What does that sound like? 430 years is the amount of time that Israel spent in bondage in Egypt. They were in exile, as it were, in severe bondage under the Egyptians 430 years before the Exodus. So what is God doing there? What is God communicating through those signs? God is comparing their bondage in Babylon, their exile to Assyria, God is comparing that exile, that bondage, to the harsh bondage they experienced in Egypt. You see, there's a connection between the two. That exile, they, they're exiled in Assyria, exiled in Babylon, that's compared to their harsh bondage in Egypt. What is the purpose of comparing the two of those? There's going to be an exodus. You see, there's going to be an exodus. He's using numbers, and he says, this is that. That typifies this. He's making a connection. Now, from that time, Ezekiel is then to make barley bread with human waste. And the Lord said in verse 13, So shall the children of Israel eat their defiled bread among the Gentiles, where I will drive them, where they will eat, uh, where they will waste away because of their sin against God. Now, in Ezekiel chapter 5, if you want to turn there, you can. Ezekiel chapter 5, we then see God's judgment poured out. And God's judgment is poured out in thirds. We're going to put this together in a moment. Hang in there with me. Ezekiel chapter 5, verse 12. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. One third shall fall by the sword all around you, and I will scatter another third to all the winds, and I will draw out a sword after them. One third, one third, one third. One third is simply an indication that 
if you escape the first one, the next one's going to get you. And if you escape the second one, the third one's going to get you. You will not escape judgment. You will not escape judgment. God has the means by which he judges those who dwell upon the earth by sword, by pestilence, by famine, by beasts. And by those judgments, God will glorify himself in pouring out his justice upon unbelievers, upon the wicked. And if one judgment doesn't get you, the next one will. Revelation, think with me now, Revelation describes us, brothers and sisters, as living in Babylon. We're in Babylon. This world system will later be described in Revelation 18 as Babylon, the whore Babylon, the great harlot. So we're living in Babylon. It's as though we are in our exile, so to speak, in exile, in Babylon. Near the end of Ezekiel, in the end of his, near the end of Ezekiel, God begins to speak of a restoration, a restoration of his people, an exodus. He, he again begins to speak of an exodus, bringing them back from Babylon, gathering, to the, gathering them to himself under the true shepherd, who's that? Lord Jesus Christ. That's Ezekiel 34. Establishing a new covenant with them. That's Ezekiel 36. Breathing life into them by his spirit. That's Ezekiel chapter 37. Destroying their enemies in judgment. That's Ezekiel 38 and 39. And establishing, establishing his people in a new heavens and in a new earth. That's Ezekiel chapter 40 through 48. You see the connection now between those. It's an amazing, again, this is typology. These, these are uh, foreshadowings. Of, of God's ultimate plan and what God will ultimately do. And you can bet your bottom dollar that if God did that with the Egyptians and he pulled his people back out of exile from Babylon, then he will most certainly accomplish his decrees for the end of the age concerning us, right? This is going to come to pass. So all that, how does he do this? How does he do it? By destroying his enemies, which are also our enemies, in Egypt-like plagues, that are meant to display his power and meant to display his justice upon unbelievers. A third, a third, a third. No one will escape judgment. No one will escape justice. Now with that comparison in mind, think with me. We now turn to the blast of the second trumpet in Revelation chapter 8, verse 8. Right, all of this is connected. Their sojourn or their, their bondage in Egypt in the fiery furnace and the exodus. Their exile to Assyria, their exile to Babylon and the exodus, and now a restoration of God's people, an exodus, an exodus, if you will, out of that harlot Babylon and into the promised land. And God is going to do it again. Verse 8, now Revelation chapter 8, verse 8. Then the second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Again, this should remind us of Moses turning the waters of the Nile to blood in Exodus chapter 7. And the fish of the Nile died. And then he mentions in verse 8, something like a great mountain. A great mountain. Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. Turn there with me. Revelation chapter 18, verse 21. This wicked world system called Babylon is compared to a great millstone that a mighty angel throws into the sea. A great mountain, if you will, a great stone. Look at verse 21. Then a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone, a great stone, and threw it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence the great city Babylon shall be thrown down 
and shall not be found anymore. It's interesting, many places throughout Scripture, these wicked false kingdoms, these wicked kingdoms of the world, these wicked human governments are described by, as mountains. And in particular, Babylon. Listen to this from Jeremiah 51. Listen to this. And Jeremiah here in Jeremiah 51 prophesies the ultimate destruction of Babylon, the ultimate destruction of that wicked city. Jeremiah 51, verse 24. And I will repay Babylon and all the inhabitants of Chaldea for all the evil they have done in Zion in your sight, says the Lord. Behold, I am against you, Babylon, O destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth, says the Lord. That's our Babylon. A great mountain. If you remember from the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, remember the golden statue? Or the statue with the four medals, right? And that statue that represents the kingdoms of the earth and one at the end of the age, uh, a small stone is thrown. That small stone destroys the statue and then grows and consumes all of the earth. It grows into a great mountain, a great mountain that consumes the earth. Here's the satanic counterfeit. The stone, that, that city, that system of this world grows and consumes all the earth. It's Babylon, Babylon the whore, the harlot, destroying mountain, who destroys all the earth. God says, verse 25, I will stretch out my hand against you, roll you down from the rocks and make you a burnt mountain. It's a great mountain with fire thrown into the sea, if you will. They shall not take from you a stone for a corner, nor a stone for a foundation. You shall be desolate forever, says the Lord. Set up a banner in the land, blow the trumpet among the nations, prepare the nations against her. Why is God using trumpets to announce his judgment? God did it back here in Jeremiah 51 and said, prophesied this in Jeremiah 51 about that judgment at the end. You see, about that judgment that's being poured out even now. That wicked world system is is coming apart at the seams around us. We see it on the news every day, amen? This wicked world system is coming unraveled. We see that judgment being poured poured out upon it even now. It will fully and one day finally fall. God will cast it down. And there in Babylon, again in Revelation 18, the ships couldn't trade any longer. Verse 17, Revelation 18, verse 17. In one hour, such great riches came to nothing. Every shipmaster, all who travel by ships, sailors, and as many as trade on the sea, stood at a distance and cried out when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, what is like this great city? They threw dust on their heads and cried out, weeping and wailing and saying, Alas, alas, that great city in which all who had ships on the sea became rich by her wealth, for in one hour she is made desolate. Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you holy apostles and prophets, for God has avenged you on her. Those martyrs under the altar, Revelation 5, their prayers are answered. The prayers of his saints ascending before God and the incense of the altar, those prayers are answered and she's cast down. She's cast down in a moment, as it were. In one hour, she comes to an end. This is speaking, this trumpet, again, is signifying the great judgment of our Lord Jesus Christ upon the kingdoms of this world at his coming. Right? It's, it's a, another example of how these judgments are being poured out continuously during the church age, all pointing to and culminating in a great and final judgment of the Lord Jesus Christ at his return. So the trumpets are targeting the earth. The trumpets are targeting those who dwell on the earth. Ultimately, these trumpets are foreshadowing the full and final destruction of this world system, the downfall of Babylon, the great harlot. 
Then back in Revelation chapter 8, the third trumpet sounds. Verse 10. Then the third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch. It fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Is that, um, now when you read that, uh, is that third helpful to you? Thinking through how that is meant and why that would be said in that way, right? It helps us as we, we understand those things in reading through the book. It helps us understand what's being said. It's a third, a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. Verse 11, the name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood and many men died from the water because it was made bitter. Those who escape the judgment of the water will fall under a different judgment. Do you see? A third, a third, a third. Now, in pouring out his wrath upon those who dwell on the earth, God now strikes the rivers and the springs. He strikes the fresh water supply. And he does so with a great star that falls from heaven like a burning torch. And that burning torch of a star has a name. His name is Wormwood. And many died drinking the bitter water. So if we're going to properly interpret the capstone of the canon, where do we go to understand Wormwood? We go back to the Old Testament, don't we? We go back to Scripture and allow Scripture to interpret Scripture. So if you will, you can turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 29. Deuteronomy chapter 29. And there's one among many references in the Old Testament to Wormwood found in Deuteronomy chapter 29, beginning in verse 14. So listen along now, verse 14. I make this covenant and this oath, not with you alone, but with him who stands here with us today before the Lord our God, as well as with him who is not with, here with us, with us today, for you know that we dwelt in the land of Egypt and that we came through the nations which you, which you passed by and you saw their abominations and their idols which were among them, wood and stone and silver and gold. Verse 18, so that there may, may not be among you a man or a woman or a family or a tribe whose heart turns away today from the Lord our God to go and to serve the gods of these nations and that there may not be among you a root, of, a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. In other words, idolatry. Idolatry is a root that bears bitterness and wormwood. It bears the bitter fruit of coming under God's judgment. What is wormwood? God's judgment. Waters are made bitter. God's judgment. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 13. Listen to this. And the Lord said, because they have forsaken my law, which I set before them, and have not obeyed my voice, nor walked according to it, but rather they have walked according to the dictates of their own hearts and after the Baals, which their father has taught them. What's that? It's called idolatry. Verse 15. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I will feed them this people with wormwood. I'm going to judge them. He says, and give them water of gall to drink. I'm going to give them bitterness in their water. Whatever that looks like, it's the judgment of God poured out against their idolatry. Often that's a reference to famine. It's a reference to drought. I will scatter them also among the Gentiles, whom neither they nor their fathers have known, and I will send a sword after them until I have consumed them. Right? A third, a third, a third. In other words, to feed them with wormwood and to feed them with bitter water is to bring them into judgment because of their idolatry. Here, scattering them among the Gentiles and even devouring them with the sword. Jeremiah laments over the judgment of God that is coming to uh, Israel um, and coming in response to Israel's idolatry. 
Jeremiah says this, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 15. Jeremiah says, he has filled me with bitterness. He has made me to drink wormwood. Just at the knowledge of these things, right? This bitterness. He has also broken my teeth with gravel, covered me with ashes. You have moved my soul far from peace. I have forgotten prosperity. And I said, my strength and my hope have perished from the Lord. Remember my affliction and roaming the wormwood and the gall. In other words, the bitterness of judgment, the misery of judgment, the woe of judgment. So a star in Revelation chapter 8, a star named Wormwood, is another way of describing the judgment of God falling from the heavens like fire against the idolatry of this world. There's all kinds of ways today, isn't there, that people worship their idols, right? Pop idols of this world, the entertainment idols of this world, money, popularity, the applause of men, whatever it is, right? Whatever it is. People worshiping their idols. And this uh, trumpet, the third trumpet in verse 10, is again another way of describing or explaining that God will pour out his judgment in bitterness and in misery upon those who worship idols in the last day, in the age of the church. Um, Wormwood, right? Many died from their idolatry, ultimately, from the water. Uh, It's against those who worship and serve the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. The prophet Amos describes wormwood as the effect of injustice. Injustice. Everybody wants to proclaim social justice today. It's social injustice. They're going to reap the bitterness of God's judgment against their so-called ideologies of justice. Um, the effects, the effects of idolatry, the effects of injustice fall like a poison, killing those who drink its bitter waters. That's a way, a good way to describe this judgment. Wormwood, gall, the effects of idolatry, the effects of injustice fall like a poison, killing those who drink of its bitter waters. So the judgments of God in Revelation 8 described as great hail, great mountain, a great star, all falling in fire. Do you see? Judgments of God um, cast with great fire down upon the earth. Great mountain with fire cast down to the earth. A great star burning with fire cast down to the earth. Verse 12. Then the fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun was struck, a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of them were darkened. A third of the day did not shine, likewise the night. This language in the fourth Sounding the fourth angel parallels that of the sixth seal from Revelation chapter 6, verse 12. It's a parallelism here. Verse 12 in chapter 6, I looked and he opened the sixth seal. Behold, there was a great earthquake. The sun became black as sackcloth of hair. The moon became like blood. The stars of heaven fell to the earth as a fig tree drops its slate figs when it is shaken by a mighty wind. Similar language um, because we're depicting uh, a parallel judgment. Not surprisingly, we're also reminded of the plague of darkness upon Egypt in Exodus chapter 10. No darkness, though, in the land of Goshen, God's people preserved. And here we see in this fourth angel sounding, the fourth trumpet blast, we see catastrophic disturbance, disturbances in the hosts of heaven. These are the realms in which man forms his idols, right? Uh, the earth, the sea, and under the sea. In Exodus uh, chapter 20, when the Lord gives the Ten Commandments at Sinai to the children of Israel, 
Listen to the second commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 4. God says, you shall not make for yourself the carved image. You're not to be an idol worshiper. You're not to make yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. Why would he mention those specific locales? It's because it's from those specific locales that men fashion their idols. He says, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Three realms, the earth, the waters, and the heavens. And again, a familiar, the familiar language of one-third, one-third, one-third. Each a limited judgment, each a limited judgment, ominously pointing to complete judgment. Like ominously pointing to complete destruction. In other words, there is a sense, isn't there? Like one-third, one-third, one-third. If I escape, if I escape the wormwood, right? and I see great fiery hail falling out of heaven, I probably should repent. I should, I should probably turn from my sin. I should probably put my trust in Jesus Christ before, because I'm not going to escape, right? A third, a third, a third. No one escapes the justice of God. This complete destruction, it's a picture that complete destruction is coming. And it's coming with a severe intensity. And that severe intensity is then contained in the last three trumpets, culminating with the return of the Lord Jesus Christ and the great day of his wrath. Look at verse 13. And I looked then, and I heard an angel flying through the midst of heaven, saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. We see in these references to Egypt, God's judgment in the last days poured out upon mankind's idolatry. In the same way that God judged the idols in the land of Egypt, God will judge the islands, the idols of this whore Babylon in our world, world system and with the brightness of his coming. The earth, the sea, the waters, and the heavens on fire, as it were, the realms from which men craft their idols. Men drinking in the poison of their idolatry, the wormwood and the gall. Bitter suffering as the judgments of God are poured out poured out on the false gods of the pagans, all of these judgments, each affecting a third. Whoever escapes the first third will be caught by the second. And whatever escapes the second will be certainly overcome by the third. And at last, at the end, Babylon herself will be cast down as if in an hour. There is no escape the judgment of God. And these first four trumpets are but the beginning of sorrows. Three woes yet remain. So again, what is the, the lesson for us in all of this? The Lord told you ahead of time what would come to pass, right? That's John 16, John 14, Lord's gracious to us. He tells us ahead of time what will come to pass so that we're not caught off guard, caught flat-footed, caught unknowing, caught like those who walk in darkness. We're sons of the light. And God has given us his truth and prepared us for the things that will befall this age. These things build in severity. They're already being poured out. The, the, the wrath of God presently being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, they're already being poured out. They'll be poured out with increasing severity and increasing frequency, all pointing to an ultimate pouring out of judgment at the end in which all of this comes crashing down. Those who escape the first will not escape the second. Those who escape the second will not escape the third. Judgment will fall down like rain and God will have his justice. God vindicates his name upon the earth and he vindicates his um, power, his justice for those who cry out to him from under the altar, those saints, 
if you will, who are crying out to, to God, how long, holy and true, before you avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth. God is faithful to his word. And as faithful as he is to his word in his promises of salvation and deliverance to us, he is just as faithful to his word in his promises of judgment and of justice poured out upon those who dwell upon the earth. So what are we to do, brothers and sisters? We're to persevere in faithfulness. We're to understand the time in which we find ourselves. We're to, um, we're to see God as sovereign over all of these things. Rejoice in the Lord that he preserves his people. That doesn't mean we're not going to face suffering. That doesn't mean that we may lose our life for the sake of his name. But God preserves. He knows how to preserve his own. Not simply preserving us from difficulty in this life, but preserving us for eternal life. He promises to preserve us for eternal life, and he will. To him who overcomes, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. These are trials, brothers and sisters, which we will, to one degree or another, we will endure. Through many tribulations, we must, must enter the kingdom of God. And that which hardens the unbeliever, is meant for our good, brothers and sisters, meant to purify us, to refine us, to strengthen us, to, to preserve us, bolster our faith. So what are we to do, brothers and sisters? We're to endure. We're to overcome. We're to continue following the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not turn to the right hand or to the left. Do not shrink back, but press forward. Amen? Pray with me. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for these admonitions. Thank you for this, uh, this depiction of judgments, trials, tribulations being poured out during the church age and help us by your grace by the strength that your spirit supplies help us to persevere as lights that shine in a dark place as a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of your, your name for our everlasting good and for your everlasting praise we love you and we thank you Lord for encouraging us in this way in Jesus name Amen Thanks for listening. My name is Mark Brashear, and I have the blessed privilege of serving with the Saints at Cornerstone Church near Orlando, Florida. We're so grateful that you've connected with us through the sermon that you've just heard. For more information, visit us at cornerstoneorlando.org. Or better yet, come and see us on the Lord's Day at 3370 Snow Hill Road in Oviedo, Florida. We're just east of Orlando and about 15 minutes from the campus at UCF. It would be a joy to have you worship with us.